Welcome to You Are Seen, The Untold Stories. Here, we share personal experiences in hopes that we can transform the way we see others. I'm Nick Jazdan, a storyteller and filmmaker who believes in producing with a greater purpose. We all have a story to tell, and I think we should start listening to each other in order for us to create a more loving world. When we hear and understand someone else's story, we're telling that person and that community, you are seen. This season, we're focusing on uplifting Black voices. I sat down with L'Oreal on July 2nd. I got picked on a lot. Like, I got called Oreo and things like that because I speak proper English. I don't know what it is with Black people and this homophobia, like, this whole pushing the gay agenda, like... That crap, I hear that more from Black people than any other race of people. L'Oreal Moss is a clarity catalyst and lifestyle strategist with a passion for helping entrepreneurial moms discover their purpose. As the founder and CEO of Intuitive Biz Solutions, she provides services to help business owners infuse self-care into their work hire the best team to excel their business growth, and receive support and accountability as they navigate their unique path to greatness. When she's not working or recording episodes for her podcast, Girl F Them Kids, she can be found dancing inappropriately to popular music, sleeping, or sipping a cocktail. Here is L'Oreal. Hi, everyone. My name is L'Oreal. I am 31 Born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee, and I am black, 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 kitty, black. <laughs> <laughs> You're also a part of the LGBTQ community. What do you identify yourself as? I used to identify as bisexual, but mm-hmm. now I identify as pansexual. And can you explain that a little bit for people who don't know? Bisexual people are usually attracted to men and women. I am attracted to people that identify as male, female, even non-binary people, transgender, like Mm -hmm. everybody can get the love I have to give. (laughs) Yeah. That's how how I describe it. So it's basically you're falling in love with the person and not the the body, let's say. Yes, the person, most definitely. They, They call it like... I'm more into someone's vibe, their energy, um, than whether or not they're a man or a woman. Yeah. Do some equal opportunity. Right. (laughs) Equal opportunity, most definitely. So growing up Black in your neighborhood or in your community, how was that? What kind of community did you grow up in? I grew up in you know, like a typical middle-class community. There were white people, black people, Hispanic people, but my school was predominantly black. And I got picked on a lot. Like I got called Oreo and things like that because I speak proper English. I, I use slang and things like that, but I always spoke proper English in school. Um, I was one of those kids that loved getting called on to read passages out of the books in class, but I got picked on a lot because of that. And I've had people tell me that I don't act Black, I don't sound Black, and I felt like I never really was Black enough to hang out with certain people at school. And that was all throughout high school, too. 
I wouldn't want to go back and repeat it. <laughs> yeah, no, of course. Not. I mean, a lot of us would not want to go back or repeat it. Where were you raised in your upbringing? I was born in Memphis, raised in Memphis in like the Raleigh area. So it's kind of like outside of the suburbs. So there's the suburbs and then there's like the mini suburbs. And then I was like right outside of like the mini suburbs right before you get into like the hood. But Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time in the hood because that's where a lot of my family was. And I actually liked being out there because of the types of people that were out there. Yeah. You felt like you saw who you were out there. Yeah, because they, a lot of the people out there, like I've always considered myself to be kind of bougie, which is not, I, I no longer think that's a bad thing. I just have standards and I like what I like. But I hung out with a lot of people that you would consider to be hood rich, mm. where like they have all these nice things with tons of debt. And I don't encourage anybody to live that way. But those are a lot of the people that I hung around and they were so laid back and they were just so free. And even though the kids in my school picked on me for not being black enough, like those people out in the hood, they accepted me. For, for who I was. And, you know, they thought I was kind of weird because I was into anime and things like that, but they still accepted me. Do you feel like there was any struggle growing up? If you could share that, what, what would it be? The biggest struggle, honestly, was trying to figure out my sexuality, like dealing with that because, you know, I was raised in the church and, um, you know, this, the, the preaching of the hellfire for doing anything that is not of, like all of that, mm-hmm. dealing with all of that, knowing that I was attracted to boys, but also knowing that I was attracted to girls because at the time I didn't know anything about like trans people and all of that, but it was really hard mm-hmm. because when all of the girls are sitting around talking about their crushes. I'm like, well, I think Tiffany is fine. You know, <laughs> and so it, was, it was weird. And I wasn't always able to express that without backlash or, you know, people feeling like they couldn't hang around me because I would try to do something to them. That was probably the, the biggest yeah. struggle that I had growing up. Yeah. Did you feel like you went through a harder time because you were also Black and queer? Um, Most definitely because I don't know what it is with Black people and this homophobia, like this whole pushing the gay agenda, like that crap. I hear that more from Black people than any other race of people. And I don't know where it comes from. I kind of don't care, but I know that it's very toxic. It was very hard to find circles where I felt safe, finding friends that I could be myself around because there's not only code switching when it comes to the way that you speak, but the way that you act. And it doesn't just happen in the workplace. It happens at home. Mm -hmm. It happens at school. Um, And I don't think a lot of people realize that. And so me growing up being queer, trying to learn more about that without outing myself because I was afraid of the backlash and, you know, what could happen. It was very tough. And it wasn't until maybe my junior year of high school Mm. where I found my people. 
I appreciate them for for creating a safe space for me. Yeah, definitely feeling safe is very important. But if you could find that space, not mm-hmm. a lot of people can find those spaces. But when you do find them, it, it changes your life a little bit. Yeah, it does. And I because I had these like ride or die friends, like mm-hmm. we we're not as tight as we used to be because we live like all over the place. But, you know, having that tight knit group of friends and being able to tell them at the time I'm bisexual and not having them judge me, not having them decide that they don't want to be friends with me anymore. Um, allowing me to have other friends. Like they weren't the kind of friends where if you're my friend, you're my friend and you can't be friends with anybody else. Like I was able to hang out with the, with the gay girls at school. I was able to hang out with the feminine guys, the gay guys at school. Like I feel like having that safe space created this level of confidence Mm -hmm. and comfort within myself to really let me grow and be who I wanted to be. Yeah. When you find your tribe, and you feel mm-hmm. confident with them, you, you can go anywhere. Was there a moment when you felt like, first moment you felt racism was real? Like where you were like, whoa. I was very young. Um, I was about six years old. And I had a crush on this cute little white boy named Daniel. <laughs> and I thought he was just gorgeous. And um, he, his best friend, his name was Frederick, and he was black. And I remember one day that Daniel came to school with like these scratches and stuff on him. And I was like, you know, did you get into a fight or something? And he told me and Frederick that his dad had beat him up because he found out that Frederick had been at their house when his dad wasn't home. Frederick and I knew why his dad did it, but Daniel really had no idea why his dad would be so upset. And he was telling us about the things that, um, you know, that his dad was saying, you know, I don't want any coons at my house and using the N word and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And so that's when I, it it hit me that me wanting to have a white friend or a friend that was not black could be harmful, Mm -hmm. you know, and I can only imagine what his dad would have done had he come home while Frederick was there. Like, I can only imagine what would have happened to either of them. And that that's a lot at six mm-hmm. years old. And there was another time, I want to say I was about 10, and I was walking home from school by myself. Like, I, I did that regularly. And this truck full of white guys that came out of nowhere, and they start throwing rocks and beer bottles and, and stuff at me while I'm walking home, and they're calling me the n-word they're calling me a bitch and all of this other stuff and I was like why did they feel the need to attack me Mm. when all I was doing was walking home that was a very traumatic experience like 10 years old and I had already seen um a time to kill so I was afraid that that was going to be me I was afraid that they would take me away and that they would hurt me and that nobody would know it was very hard. And I honestly, like, I didn't even share that experience until like months after it happened because I didn't know how to communicate. Like, I didn't know how to express how I was feeling 
I started thinking maybe I had done something wrong. Like just by existing, I had done something to provoke them. I you almost, I almost had me crying. Like that's, <laughs> that's intense. People, and you know, the sad part is a lot of people who grow up affluent areas, like New, I'm in New Jersey. So it's a little like different, right? There are places in New Jersey, there's racism everywhere. Right. But those stories, like if you told someone in New Jersey and like more of the, you know, diverse areas, they would be shocked. Yeah. Like that's a shocking story, but that story probably happens all the time. Mm-hmm. It does. And, and I wouldn't expect something like that living in the area I lived in because there was such a mix of people. Yeah. There was such a mix of people. And, you know, my mom's like old school neighbor. I look after your kids. You look after my kids. And, and she was, she know she's always known all of the people who have lived around her. And so to know that there are people like that lurking in your neighborhood that, that feel that way and that view your children and you and your family that way, I can't imagine what that was like for her, let mm-hmm. alone to know that something like that had happened to her daughter. Do you think those experiences, I guess in the moment it's different, but now that you look back, does that make you angry? Or is it something that like, you know what, not that you were happy that it happened, but this experience made me stronger. It's a little bit of both. Um, I think we all go through times in our life where it's like, why did this have to happen to me? Like me of all people. Mm. Because, of course, we don't want to deal with hardships. We don't want to have to deal with things that we consider, like, negative or or whatever. But every single thing that I've been through in my life has definitely shaped me and has helped me be who I am. And because I went through that, I can protect my children. I have three little girls, you know. And so every single thing that I've been through, I can use that to teach them and to help them, to protect them and to also empower them to protect themselves. And, and so growing up, did you feel like you had sort of a role model, someone who you looked at and said, I want to be that person when I grow up? Honestly, I didn't really have like one role model. Mm-hmm. I really looked up to women who like bucked the system that didn't really care about rules. It's funny kind of looking back on it now, but my mom has a lot of friends that are like wild, free women. <laughs> And growing up, they're like, you should date multiple people, date some women, you know, just go out there, live your life and all of that. And sure, she kept me away from them because mm-hmm. she wanted me to, <laughs> she wanted me to, you know, be a certain way. But looking back, it's like those kinds of women who were just free and happy and just living their definition of their best life. Like those are the women that I looked up to for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, And so do you feel like now that you have kids, do you feel like what kind of message or what would you tell? Cause this whole movement right now Uh is ran by the youth, right? Millennials and younger. And so thinking about that, you know, what kind of message would you want them to know? Man, my children are going to be some free wild women. <laughs> like, they they just are. Because I parent differently. I was such a sheltered child. So a lot of kids kind of go through that rebellious stage around 13, 14. I didn't start rebelling until I was like 17. So I caught the whole family 
off guard, you know? Um, but I don't shelter my kids for that very reason, because I don't want them to feel like they can't trust me. I don't want them to feel like they can't come talk to me about certain things. I share a lot with them. Um, I share my feelings. I let them know when I'm in pain. I let them know when I'm not having a good day. I'm not one of those moms that lets her kids like just hug on her and touch her all the time. I teach them about boundaries, personal space and consent. I teach them about energy. I teach my, you know, my oldest daughter, we started talking about like sex and racism when she was like six years old. Um, because that's when I started to experience being um, stereotyped and being sexualized and things like that. So I've been talking to her about that since she was six. She just turned 10 a couple months ago. And so I share with them the truth about life. And if, if they come ask me questions, I do my best to break it down so that they understand. Um, and it's really amazing to see how much my 10 year old knows already without having to come to me like just how smart she is and how in tune she is to things. Like she may not know the word for something, but she's quick to say, that's not right. That's not okay. They shouldn't treat this person like this. You know, she, she sent all of my babies stand up for people, even down to the three-year-old, you know? <laughs> so I, and, and I love it. I wouldn't have it any other way. No, that's amazing. And, and I, I agree with you a hundred percent. Like, you think about how we grew up and you think about when we start to experience things versus how school introduces things. Mm -hmm. And they're so late to the game. Right. They're at the final yeah. hour. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're at like the way behind the curve. It's like, I already know about, <laughs> yeah. about all this. Like, can we just skip this part? Um, mm -hmm. But hopefully that'll change too. I think especially with like the COVID and a lot of parents, you know, I hate to say it, but a lot of parents are being forced to parent now. Like yeah. COVID stopped a lot of that, you know, kind of peddling your kids off to whoever was available. And I really think that there are going to be so many changes mm. happening as a result of this. Like, yeah. and I'm looking forward to, I'm here for all of it. I yeah. am. Because I think for the first time in ever, you know, parents are starting to have a relationship Yes. A special relationship with their kids. So yes. when it's like, oh, you're learning this. Well, why are you learning this? You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. you should be learning it this way. And so I think, yeah, to your point, I think this sort of was, even though it's a very sad time, um, mm -hmm. you know, because of people getting sick and people dying, but it's also a time where we got to sort of relook at our lives. And so I think there are many positive things. And I think one thing is sort of the Black Lives Matter movement Yes. Which has always been there, but mm -hmm. it's always been thrown to the side. Yeah. Next year we'll get there or the yeah. year after we'll get there. And now we've seen it be very uncomfortable for the past, I would say, month, maybe a little less than a month. It's been very uncomfortable. And so how do you feel about this moment and then that movement really getting the spotlight? I think it's really ironic because mm -hmm. before COVID a lot of us were so busy just kind of rushing through life, like trying to get to the next thing, trying to hit the next milestone, really ignoring the things that we say are important to us, ignoring our spouse, ignoring our 
hobbies, ignoring our children. And that this has really forced everybody to slow down. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the things that we were able to push off to the side, like people being blatantly racist, it's like, oh, I can't deal with that right now because I have this thing, this thing, this thing. It's like now that you're forced to sit down and be still, like you have to see. You have to look at what's going on. There's no way you can look at what's happening. I mean, some people are just really determined to Mm -hmm. still be blind to it. But those of us who have a conscience, those of us who know better and have been talking this talk about how we want to do better, it's like now we have to. Mm. It's really time to to walk the talk. You Mm -hmm. see it. You understand it, you feel it, and now it's time for you to take action, however however that looks for you. And I, I think I always put it this way. It's like, if you believe in God, but God sort of sent us to our rooms mm-hmm. yeah. and said, you better think over what you've done. You better take care of your neighbor. And then he exposed Black Lives Matter, which was, for some people, I mean, you see it on social, the media, this is there it's weird but this is very traumatic not just for black people right mm-hmm. but just also for white people to expose yeah. that part of them mm-hmm. right like to expose the part of all of us so old-fashioned like mm-hmm. like one even one story was like the you know how they say the master's bedroom for houses mm-hmm. right like yeah. they're starting to change that yeah why is it called the master's bedroom but like to regular everyone i think like what yeah no one thought about that, you know, but it's so ingrained into our everyday that it's so traumatic. Like you see all these Karens blowing up before our eyes on social, like they're going, that's not like just anger. That's a mental health issue that's going on right there because Mm -hmm. they are, they need counseling. They need some therapy. They do. They They, they do. do. And it's, I, I love the way that you put that. Like everybody, especially for for non-black people because i don't like to say people of color because all people of color don't consider themselves black yeah and there's still like this hierarchy Mm -hmm. within that group that you consider like indigenous people of color like there's still this kind of hierarchy where black people are still considered to be like bottom of the barrel Mm. you know and there, I think that a lot of people are kind of having this identity crisis. We need to clean it up. We need to get it together. We need to find a way to make it better. And that is hard. And this is work that a lot of Black people have already been doing because we've had no choice. We've had no choice. Like a lot of us start doing shadow work as kids because we're trying to protect ourselves. We're trying to survive. And so this is this is nothing new to us, but it's new to so many other people. And it's like, it's a lot to deal with. Shadow work is ugly. It's yeah. painful. Nobody yeah. wants to deal with it, but we're mm-hmm. in a time where it's like, you can't, there, there's too much. There's too yeah. much. Something has to be done. Yeah. And yeah, I, I interviewed someone who said that Black people have more than one talk. So like white people have the birds and the bees. That's their talk. That's the ultimate yeah. talk. But black people have mm-hmm. multiple talks, whether it's yes. dealing with the police, whether it's dealing with your hair and your beauty, it's dealing mm-hmm. with how you compose yourself in the work. Like it's so much more, which conversations they should be happening, but it's so much more pressure. Yes. 
It is. And, and what I love throughout this whole time, I've interviewed my like 12th or 11th, you know, person mm-hmm. I've interviewed is there's really not one way to be black, but the media portrays it as one way. Yes. Like, I love that you love anime. Yeah. <laughs> but like <laughs> a person who's never met a black person in their life would think that's like foreign to them. Yeah. Because they have the, what they've seen in the media, what they've seen in film is not that. That yeah. story is not being told. And so I'm yeah. so happy you got to allow me to interview you, even though it's like a little and it's going to be on my podcast. But like, <laughs> like those stories, but need to be told seriously. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I think, I think it's refreshing to know that we are all human. Yeah. That's a, that's an, that's a clear, clear thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but people don't think that way. And, it, and it's frustrating, but I think we got to do things like this mm-hmm. in order to allow them to learn. To close it off, mm-hmm. you know, what sort of, what hope do you have for the future? What, where, where's the light at the end of the tunnel? My hope is that at the end of the day, people get more comfortable with just checking themselves and taking responsibility. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's what it all comes down to. Like, let's be adults. Okay. Like there's a difference between saying I'm grown and like acting grown, like really being grown. Mm. So it's like at the end of the day, I my hope is that people stop complaining and take responsibility for everything happening in their lives and really look to not just be better people, but to have something meaningful to contribute to to the current state of affairs and that people strive to spark some joy because we need it. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of pain and there's hurt and there's, it's like, we're just surrounded by death and destruction and disaster, but there's still so many treasures to be Mm -hmm. found during this time. And I really hope too, that on top of taking responsibility, that people make time to find some treasure, you know, and appreciate it while they have it. Thank you so much, L'Oreal. I just want you to know that your story matters and you are seen. To learn more about L'Oreal and more, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at You Are Seen Podcast. I want you to join me every Thursday, so make sure to subscribe and review this podcast. Share with your friends and family. A special thanks to our team, editor Angelica Salvador and graphic designer Victoria Ayub. I'll see you next Thursday for another episode of You Are Seen, the untold stories. And don't forget, make sure to spread love and be kind.